Welcome to the Plymouth Meeting Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope the following message touches your hearts and minds. So I wanted to let you know I've been working on a new a new series or at least uh, a few concepts or themes of you know string string of sermons and messages coming up here, um, but they are they are still baking and. and just with this, this last week, it was my wife's birthday and Valentine's Day and just sort of um, other things on my plate, try, trying to clear that plate. Long story short, just a few days ago, I wasn't sure what I would be preaching on today um, because I wasn't ready to, to start where I want to go with our sermons. I wasn't ready to to get there yet. And so I'm like, okay, we're going to have to gonna have to come up with something here. Um, and so I wasn't... You know, yeah, again, even just a couple days ago, I wasn't even sure that I'd be preaching uh, this this sermon today. We are talking about President's Day <laughs> today, and that again, that that was almost like surprising for myself. Um, and what I wanted to do is approach this in, in contextual theology. It's called critical contextualization, and I wanted to kind of take this academic perspective approach to President's Day. How do we steward President's Day well in America? And I'm going to imagine most of you have probably have never heard a message on President's Day, or at least have had the thought, how do we steward President's Day well? Uh, So again, I'm even surprised that this is where uh, we were led this morning. And uh, even on Wednesday, I tried to back out of this sermon. Because I was like, oh, Lent's coming up. Maybe I should talk about Lent or, you know, look at different things. But it was just like, no, like, this is this is the direction. This is the direction. So I just want to give all of that uh, prologue there as we, we get started with, with this morning's message. <clears throat> Nearly 300 years ago, on February 22nd, 1731, George Washington was born on a tobacco plantation in the colony of Virginia. George worked as a surveyor on the Virginia frontier and eventually would become an officer in the militia. He would go on to serve in the French and Indian War, and afterwards he would become a successful planter farmer uh, at his Mount Vernon home. In 1775, uh, The American War for Independence broke out between the colonies and Great Britain, and George was selected by the Continental Congress uh, to be the commander-in-chief of the the Continental Army. We'll pause there and just imagine, can you imagine having that job, George Washington's job, being commander-in-chief of the Continental Army? Over the next couple of years, George Washington would go on to lead the forces. Uh, We're near Valley Forge. Um, I'm aware that George Washington was perhaps in Plymouth meeting, or at least in this area. We're really close to George Washington stuff right here in our own area. He led the forces. Uh, The war did end in 1781, the British surrender in Yorktown, Virginia. And as far as what I can see in research or what I have been taught, George Washington, across the board, was seen as a national hero. Now, I'm sure there was a human out there that didn't like him, but 
George Washington, a national hero. In 1787, George was elected president of the convention that would go on to write the U.S. Constitution. Two years later, George Washington became America's first president. Author Cyrus Ansari, he summarizes, George Washington passed through life like a gale-force wind blowing across the early American landscape. Possessed as he was of boundless energy and a voracious hunger for knowledge, scarcely an area of contemporary human endeavor escaped his interest and scrutiny. Standing at the epicenter of political, military, and economic developments in America for almost half a century, Washington successfully led two campaigns that changed forever the life of all Americans. The first campaign, of course, he was known as the general The second campaign, he was known as the president. One recent poll that I saw this past week, George Washington is uh, considered one of the top three presidents in U.S. history, usually right up there with FDR and Abraham Lincoln. In 1879, George Washington's birthday, again February 22nd, it became a federal holiday. But then fast forward to 1968, Congress fixed this date to the third Monday in in, in February. And many Americans know this holiday as President's Day. And that's what we're, we're celebrating tomorrow in America. Doing some research, it is understood that President's Day also honors Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln has a February birthday as well. Lincoln, of course, many things to say about him. The 16th president, known as the preserver of the Union through the American Civil War, abolished slavery. Again, so much we could say about Lincoln and Washington. And then also, additionally, President's Day, it's also assumed that it's just a day to honor all presidents, to remember all U.S. presidents. I was reading that cherry pie is the food that is to be consumed tomorrow. Did you know that? (laughs) It's based on the legend of George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. I'm aware of that myth legend. I've never really looked into it, if it's real or not, or or where that comes from. But this holiday, President's Day, for many it's an opportunity to have a three-day weekend. You're not guaranteed to have off tomorrow, but if you do, it's the last three-day weekend until Memorial Day. (laughs) So make it count if you're off tomorrow. Now, another angle with President's Day, as just like, if we're like neutral observers here, President's Day is an opportunity for marketers. I did an internet news search. Now, granted, this is a news search, and this is what came up. The best President's Day 2023 deals on Amazon. The best President's Day furniture deals of 2023. You don't want to miss. 18 best President's Day sales of 2023. The best President's Day deals on vacuums. I'll stop there. Like, all right. So it seems like in short, okay, in in the sphere of of commercialism and marketing and, you know, three-day weekend side of things, you know, that's, that's kind of where a lot of people... Go. That, that's what we think about President's Day. Perhaps if you're looking for a new cell phone, it's a good weekend to go check out the deals. 
But of course, as we, as we pause and, and think about it, there is a deeper meaning behind President's Day. The purpose is to look into the lives of these, of these leaders, their stories. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, other presidents. Now, I don't think we have to mythicize them, all right? but with sober minds, we, we hold space to honor them. That's where we take in their stories, their time period, the society, what was going on in America uh, when they were elected, their leadership, warts and all. And then it comes to us, and we ask, okay, as Christians, as American Christians, how do we engage with President's Day? How do we steward this holiday well? As far as I know, I've never heard a sermon that's related to President's Day. So here we go. When we look into Scripture, President's Day isn't in the Bible. So this is where we get to ask, okay, what is God's attitude of American Christians honoring their leaders? So we have to take a look through the Bible. And this is what happens when, when we're approaching the Bible with a topic that isn't in the Bible. It's like we have to look at stories and multiple passages, the counsel of, of the whole scripture. And we're looking for wisdom and value, values and principles that will just sort of shape us at different angles. And hopefully we arrive to something that is biblically sound, holistic at the end. That's the pathway of critical contextualization. And so in the long historical span of the Bible, there's a variety of governments and leaders. The Bible is filled with stories of how God's people have lived with or under or in reaction to other governments, other authorities. There are stories of good leaders, good kings and queens, and, and, and they're righteous, and they're God-loving, God-honoring rulers. There's also terrifying rulers in the Bible. Oppressive rulers, wicked and cold hearts, graphic stories, kings who wage war. In the ancient world, there's also this topic of paying tribute. Okay, you, it could be a sign of submission, allegiance, respect, or perhaps it's even like, like paying a tax. If you want protection and security, well, you gotta pay up. You gotta pay tribute. We also see in the Bible how, uh, how the people of God lived in nationwide exile. Okay, so for a, a certain period of time, God's people, they weren't home, nationwide exile, living under Babylon rule. And so they had to balance maintaining their Judaism, maintaining their identity, but also in that, uh, they were oriented towards being good citizens. Okay, they were to have the ethics of, of being seekers of, of peace, seekers of prosperity for Babylon. They had to pray for Babylon, as it says in Jeremiah 29. Again, that balance, maintaining the faith, maintaining your identity, but then also seeking the welfare of the city. And then there's stories like in Daniel chapter 3. You might know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know them by their Babylonian names, all right? Those aren't their Hebrew names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They have new Babylonian names. 
They are learning the language and literature of the Babylonians. And actually, they are there to work for the king. They are government workers. They are working in the king's court. So these are Hebrew exiles working on the inside. But in the mixture of culture and religion and identity and being submissive to these Babylonian uh, leaders, in the mix of all of that, there is a limit and there's a line. And as we learn from the story, they are not going to serve imposter gods. They are not going to worship golden images. So at the risk of being burned alive, they peacefully protest. And you can read their story in Daniel chapter 3. By the time we get to the New Testament, the people of God are no longer under Babylon exile, but now the people of God are living under the oppressive military rule of Rome. And here's the thing about Rome. They're not afraid to crush you. Any shenanigans, any uprising, they will crush you. The Roman cross is a perfect example of that. It sends a message, hey, we're in charge, we are going to destroy you. This is how we put you down. A very cruel, a very painful, excruciating way to die. So we need to keep that in mind. Our modern world of liberal democracy is completely foreign to New Testament writers. The Roman Empire, again, military rule, oppressive, repressive, abusive. You might know the stories of Emperor Nero, terrifying tyrant, graphic violence stories. I won't repeat them here. But Christians, all right, the, the first Christians, the majority of them were Jewish. They're already tired of Roman dominance. But now they're, they're, they've met Jesus and they're Christians. Christians are, they are a minority group in the empire. Persecution is a reality. Some face enslavement, torture, being thrown in jail. And of course, they might be killed for their faith. So we have to keep that context in mind as we approach New Testament life in the empire. And interestingly, New Testament principles, in the middle of this Roman world, where the New Testament leans, it leans into submission, and it leans into respecting leaders. So now if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll check out a couple different passages today. Uh, but we'll start in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, 1 to 5 is where we'll start. Romans 13. Paul writes, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. In short, God has instituted human government. And the word that is used here is submit, or in the NIV, be subject to. It's not an unashamed, blatant obedience. But rather, it's sort of like, hey, take that step back. See the bigger picture that God is supreme. The bigger picture that government is a God-given sphere. And we are to stand under 
our government. Paul continues on. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. In brief, government is to act on God's behalf. And whether it's known or not, the one in authority is a servant of God. So, on the local bureaucrat level, county and state authorities, presidents, prime ministers, and so on and so on. As flawed as it is, government is appointed to restrain evil, preserve order, and encourage fair society. Therefore, in light of them being God's servants, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So I know the challenge is, the challenge here today, it it forces us to look deep within our character and perhaps sometimes do the really hard thing and submit to authority. Whether you're a Christian in America or Angola or Brazil or Lithuania or Norway or Zimbabwe, it is our responsibility to be subject to to the authority of the nation in which we reside. Now, as a side note, I'm interested, I'm I'm intrigued by what colonial-era theology was like when Christians were wrestling with, hey, do we rebel against Great Britain? You know, what, what was the mixture there? Now, ultimately... As Jesus followers, ultimately we will be at odds with the powers of the world. Because Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And Paul is not saying that this is a blanket statement of of approval. Paraphrasing one author, submission doesn't mean you have to be in total agreement. It doesn't mean that you're a robot. It doesn't mean that you lose your voice. It doesn't mean that you put king and kingdom second. The counsel is this. We make space for it. And we try to respect our leaders. And on some days, it may be very difficult. But we give up our efforts to self-rule. We're not autonomous. And we're going to try to be good citizens. Bouncing over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, 13-17. Peter is giving instructions Uh, to live godly lives, part of which is submitting to human authority. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves, 
Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And so our approach is this. We belong to God. We belong to God. The, the, the Greek word doulos is right there. Sometimes translated as slave. Sometimes translated as bondservant, servant. We, we belong to God. Live as slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We belong to God. And as far as our conscience will allow, allow for the Lord's sake, we want to do our best to honor Jesus. And this is accomplished by the way that we live and how we honor every human by showing respect. And additionally, Peter's like, yeah, love the church. Fear God, revere God, honor, honor those in power. And so from the well of our character, we need to draw up buckets to then pour out submission to authority, being respectful, honoring leaders. And then when we turn to 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, this passage goes beyond submission and respect. There is a call to action, a call to pray. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayer, intercession, Thanksgiving be made for all people. The invite is to pray for all people. Pray for everyone. And you'll notice that there's multiple words for prayer used here. That's a way to add luster, okay? Prayer is an action. We are taking requests before a very powerful God. And then the passage zooms in. Pray for kings and all those in authority. That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And it pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so there's kind of debate here. It's either pray specifically for kings and those in authority. Like pray for anybody in high places. Or maybe this is a, Paul's like almost putting this in parentheses here. Like, like don't forget to pray for kings and those in authority. But either way, the the call to action, the instruction is to pray broadly. And notice, if you look at verse 5, all of this praying is hitched to the overall scope of salvation. For people to know the truth, that there's one God, there's one mediator between God and humanity, it's Jesus. And so the indication is, When governments rule well, we can live quietly and go about our gospel business, living simply, living humbly, living holy lives, being able to contemplate our lives. And I think the the wisdom found in this passage can be multiplied here. You know, associates, pray for your managers, teachers. Pray for your administration. Or even this, um, you know, kids, pray for your parents. I was thinking about this this morning, and perhaps 
I was led to pray a, a prayer that I've never prayed before. And, you know, I was thinking about my, my parents, but they, you know, they're grandparents now. But I was like, you know, using this wisdom, I'm like, they might, my mom and dad, like, be holistic grandparents here. Like, like let, let, let me pray for them. They, they are in a position of, of family authority. They're grandparents of this family. May they grandparent well, you know. You see the wisdom here. Praying for those who are in higher places. Now one more passage I want to highlight here. It's a story from Mark chapter 12. Pharisees and Herodians, these two different groups that normally uh, want to get along, they do, they do get along because they're attacking Jesus here. They're trying to tangle up Jesus in his words. They say, teacher, is it right to pay the tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, Jesus, he knows this is a trap. All right, this isn't his first rodeo with these Pharisees. He knows it's a trap. Depending on how he answers, uh, he, could, he could get flagged either way. If he says, yes, pay the tax, well, that's going to make him look like a disloyal Jew. Or, or sorry, yeah, if, if you pay the tax, it's going to make you look disloyal. If you don't pay the tax, it's going to make you look like a rebel. And so Jesus says, okay, show me the coin. They bring him a coin, and he's like, Who's, whose image is on it? Caesar's image. And then Jesus says this. It's a mic drop moment. He says, give to, Caesar's, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And that just shuts down everything. They were amazed at Jesus. Paraphrasing uh, Tim Mackey, you know, they were trying to paint Jesus in a box. They were trying to put him in a, a, a category. You are going to be defined by your Roman identity, like pay the tax, or, or not pay the tax and be labeled as rebellious. But the big detail in this story is that the coin has Caesar's image on it. Actually, many or all of the coins in this whole Roman economy has Caesar's image on it. It's propaganda. If it's Caesar's, then give it to Caesar. If he wants it, give it to him. But then the statement by Jesus, it, it forces us to ask, okay, who belongs to God? Or what belongs to God? Who bears God's image? Well, he's speaking to Pharisees. They know Genesis 1 and 2. Humans are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We give ourselves fully to God. And so Jesus knows our lives intersect with the world. We have to do things like pay taxes, which I'll get on that soon, Jess. <laughs> Start gathering the, the tax documents. <laughs> we have to go to the DMV, okay? Jesus knows that. But here's the thing. Paying taxes and going to the DMV, it doesn't affect your identity. It doesn't tarnish the image that you're made in. Now, hope you guys are doing okay. In light of all that scripture we just looked at, and I'm sure there's other stories and other passages to look at, we're now going to evaluate 
what we've been considering. There is a spectrum of how Christians approach engagement with government and socio-political stuff. Some try to disengage as much as possible. There are friends out in Lancaster County. We know some of them. There are some who try to disengage as much as possible. Others, they, they hold to a high engagement. Regardless, nobody lives in their own world. And like the Daniel chapter 3 boys, you know, we too get to learn the language and the literature of our culture. We can be agents of change. We can be culture makers. But let us be clear. We're not gods and neither is the government. God is sovereign. God alone is God. Here, O Israel, there's, there's one Lord. There's one God, okay? God is God. God is sovereign. He is ruler over everything. And so we must have this bigger picture that, that all power and authority, it comes from God. And so while we belong to God, while we submit to Christ, while we are devoted to God with our whole being, yeah, we'll give the Caesars what is Caesars. And it might be like this imperfect metaphor here, but, you know, as we belong to God, it's almost as if, like, we're all loan from, from God. He, he plants us where we are, uh, and, and we'll serve as best as we can, but remember, we belong to Christ. And so further, we can be clear-headed with the fact that we do live in a broken world. There are flawed people running flawed governments, and we get that. So therefore, we appropriately submit. We try to be respectful and responsible citizens. We, we can honor those in, in leadership as broken as they are. And I, I think the most relevant thing that I can say this morning is that the pushback for us is not to add to the brokenness as much as we can, but with, with discernment and wisdom. We, we try our best with Jesus-shaped character. We approach things like President's Day. And, and, and from, from our, our Jesus posture, it's like, yeah, I'm not glorifying and worshiping the President, but I am going to open myself up. I'm going to be respectful I'm going to honor leaders. And so we ask, okay, what, what is the good news in all of this? Well, here's, here's the good news. We, we get to do this. We have the profound understanding that by the grace of God, in Christ, we belong to God. And nobody can take that away from you. We know God has an interest in order, not chaos. And so again, we do our best to be model citizens. But if you think, but if you think that we will bend our identity to fit in with whatever Nebuchadnezzar or Nero, Nero wants us to reflect and worship, we will not do that. We belong to Christ. We belong to Christ, and in light of that, we are going to represent Jesus well every day, and even on, you know, especially events called President's Day. So, honestly, here at the end, um, I don't know of any church practice around President's Day. Okay? I, 
I don't think I've ever experienced anything, <laughs> a specific church practice around President's Day. And so we kind of go back to that initial question. How do we steward President's Day well? I think if we were to reinforce any practice, I would suggest that the church redeems and repurposes February 20th, President's Day, as, as a day of prayer for our current president, our leaders, our government. You know, just to approach it from, this, from these biblical perspectives that we've been looking at today. You know, from, from this posture, and, and I encourage you to, to prepare your heart to pray for our leaders, our government, those in authority. And so, we have an opportunity for all of you today, tomorrow at 7 p.m., through the online platform Zoom, at 7 p.m., we are going to have just a prayer gathering. With the simple agenda of, hey, we are going to practice our vocation of prayer. And the Bible says, hey, pray for your leaders. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do tomorrow. You're all invited. You can check out your bulletin on the, on the church website. You can find the link tomorrow, 7 p.m. As we steward President's Day well, perhaps grab a bite of cherry pie. Join us at 7 p.m. May we be a church that places king and kingdom above nation, any political party or political preference, other preferences. May we embrace the discomfort sometimes and the lack of words sometimes of what we don't, we don't know what to pray for. But still, let us come together and pray. Let us be a force of prayer Let's pray for our leaders.